Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have Matthew Kreiner, a senior scholar at the Middlebury Institute, the Center for Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism, and John Lewis, a senior fellow at the George Washington Program on Extremism. And today we are discussing the Oath Keepers and their role in 1-6. So this is our first show discussing 1-6 and the insurrection that happened. Um, and our plan to examine 1-6, uh, we're going to start today in the very specific. So looking at the Oath Keepers, looking at the Proud Boys, and kind of looking at uh, what has happened to the far right post 1-6. Uh, in two weeks, February 10th, we're going to have a show with Bennett Clifford and John Lewis, this time discussing uh, the program on extremism, their big data set that they've put together, looking at the prosecutions. And then our third and fourth shows, uh, we're still planning and still kind of gaming out. These are going to be a little more experimental. Uh, they're going to actually look at how we investigate and prosecute extremism. So uh, if you've been following the show for the last 10 years, uh, you can kind of look at uh, how we prosecute extremism into three distinct phases, 9-11, the ISIS period, and now the far right. Uh, and we kind of want to find a scholar or find a team that has kind of looked at 1-6, uh, the ISIS period, maybe even 9-11, maybe even before 9-11. So that's taking a little more work, but uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to bring you a show that's, that's incredible and substantive. But for today, uh, we're discussing the Oath Keepers and, and the role in 1-6. So with that, please welcome Matt and John. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey. Let's, um, I kind of want to start with a very basic question, and that's who are the Oath Keepers? I think, uh, and kind of with the indictment dropping, with the sedition indictment dropping, I think the image of the Oath Keepers has been kind of consumed by the image of Stuart Rhodes, kind of guy who's been disbarred, went to Yale Law School, shot out his eye, kind of this goofy uh, big boss type character. But I think um, what, what we kind of want to do is kind of establish who the Oath Keepers are, who Stuart Rhodes is, and then we can go from there. Yeah, I'll start with that. I think, you know, the, the reality is the Oath Keepers are varied. Uh, it really just depends on which chapter, which individual, which region of the country you're talking about. I mean, as you pointed out, the group is predominantly centered around the image of Stuart Rhodes. I mean, he's the founder. He's been uh, sort of holding an iron-fisted grip over the organization for many years. Um, you know, he wrote into the bylaws that he's in there for life. He's not really headed out anytime soon, um, come hell or high water, or getting shot in the eye. Uh, but that didn't stop him. So I, I think it's really like the reality is there's, there's a very nuanced element of the Oath Keepers that is difficult to really classify and quantify even what they are, who they are, how to approach them. Um, law enforcement's had these issues for years uh, in their past engagements. They've sort of asked this question, who are they? What are they trying to accomplish? Uh, especially when they were in Ferguson during some of the social justice protests and they were presenting themselves in a way that was a little bit odd, uh, different from what we'd seen in the past with militias and activity where they took a very passive stance. Um, so, you know, I think top to bottom, when we ask who are the Oath Keepers, we have to ask ourselves a lot of different questions to back that up. Uh, but the key element is that they 
now have sort of shown themselves where they truly are. Uh, they've sort of built toward this over their, their life cycle. And that is they're, they're extremists. They view themselves as this notion of guardians of the Republic, uh, but in reality, they're not. They're, they're people that have perverted the notion of American patriotism, the notion of you know, being uh, a promoter of, of liberal values, but in, in reality, they're doing the exact opposite thing every single time they step out their door with their armaments in order to protest and present themselves as those things. Uh, and that culminates on January 6th. And I think that's why we're seeing the charges we're seeing brought now and why we're having the questions uh, regarding the, whether or not they're terrorists at times, uh, especially in these current conditions. So when we when we sit down to describe the Oath Keepers at a membership level, what does that entail? What is like a, a typical member of the Oath Keepers look like? What is their kind of ideology? You know, how, do, how does somebody go from being a civilian to being an Oath Keeper? You know, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I think it's, it's, again, it's dependent on which chapter and region of the country we're talking about, even which era of the Oath Keepers we're talking about, because there are phases that... Uh, have defined the organization and its membership um, based on, you know, current activity in the country at the time, you know, their early days look a lot different than what, what the last few years um, post-2016, simply because in the early days, they were much more focused on anti-government rhetoric, uh, the notions of new world order, conspiracies driving down the boot on the American neck, uh, whereas in the last few years, they've gotten much more involved with conspiracy theories like QAnon, Alex Jones's Infowars, Rhodes is a regular presence on that show, or at least he was, now he's in jail, he probably won't be on there too much, but we see a significant shift in their mentality and ideology, uh, and then it's not always monolithic. Individuals express varying levels of, of adherence to these ideologies uh, and, and narratives that you know, go from hardcore conspiracy theories about, like I said, QAnon to in New World Order, um, even Jade Helm. I mean, there was a period of time where they were really concerned that the, the Jade Helm military exercise uh, was going to completely reshape American uh, dynamics and social structures. Um, but I, I think, it, again, it just really comes down to individuals. And, and we've seen really virulent individuals uh, about immigration out of, out of Arizona. Uh, and we've seen others that are far more accelerationist in their mindsets, uh, like one or two that were also in the military at the same time. And I think that when you look at an organization like the Oath Keepers, certainly one that at certain points in its lifespan have claimed you know, tens of thousands of dues-paying members, even though that, that number may be a bit inflated by just individuals who have, who have donated at one point or another, I think that really does speak to how big tent uh, anti-authority, anti-government movement like the Oath Keepers can be over this 10, 11 year period, right? I think like when you look at some of the common trends in the recruitment of the group, you know, you do see some commonalities. You do see them continuously trying to appeal um, through their rhetoric, through the public statements, by roads, by, by Oath Keepers leadership, to first responders, to members of the military, to members of law enforcement really trying to hold themselves up in this kind of twisted, bastardized way as a continuation of that brand of patriotism that they claim to espouse. And time and time again, what you see at these specific flashpoints um, that the Oath Keepers have been involved in over, over these past number of years is a continued 
clash with what they view to be that tyrannical government. Now, again, obviously you can get into kind of some of the questions of mobilization and kind of questions of, you know, the, the actual activities they've engaged in and, and what they may be trying to accomplish in some of those. But I think that when you look at the, the lifespan of the group, um, it really has been formed around that idea that there will be these instances where you're, you know, we, we will come protect the average American against this, this great big bad government that's coming to take your guns and put your family in FEMA camps. Yeah, and I think what we really can say, and John pointed out a good uh, element to sort of fixate on when we talk about who are their Oath Keepers, um, whether it's individual members or the group as a whole, the sort of through line that we see that <clears throat> starts in 2009 with Rhodes' declaration of orders we will not obey to today is that the, there are conditions in which violence is necessary. Not even justified, but necessary. There, there are actual necessary conditions in the Oath Keepers mindset where Americans have to step up and say enough is enough in their minds, enough is enough, and we're going to you know, push back on these political statements or policies with violence. Uh, you know, we're a revolutionary culture. We, we were born out of a revolution, and I think that's natural to see these kind of expressions in you know, anti-system or, or anti-government spaces. Uh, but the, the reality is, is their con consistent attempts to recruit law enforcement, military, and, and, and other personnel that are in the government itself is that they don't, they're not as much true revolutionaries as much as they're trying to reshape the understanding of what America is through their views and through their willingness to use violence. And they've always, always sort of walked on the line of what is willing, you know, justified violence or necessary violence in terms of their actual actions. They've come very close in certain circumstances, like the Bundy Ranch, uh, you know, involvement with those kind of multi-group engagements. Uh, but January 6th was the most overt expression of their violence to date. So then um, I kind of want to go back to this idea that they're recruiting mostly from police and military. So what is what is the pitch there? Is it like, are they actively like going to police, going to military and kind of cultivating them? Or is it more, uh, you know, you have people who are cycling out of police and cycling out of the military and kind of saying like, here's an alternate sort of path where you can defend your country, defend your values. Like, what is, what is that pitch and what is that sort of argument or recruitment argument that, that the Oath Keepers are making? Yeah. I think when you when you really look at some of the instances where you see spikes in interest, spikes in donations, applications to the Oath Keepers that we, we, we can see from a lot of these leaks that have taken place over the past number of years, um, it really has to be said that it, it is bi-directional, right? Um, you will, of course, have, have instances where there will be targeted outreach, there will be kind of, like we talked about, those kind of you know, explicit rhetorical call-outs to these these themes of patriotism, this kind of wrapping yourself in this version of the flag that clearly appeals to individuals who are in law enforcement, are veterans. Um, but again, I think that especially when you look at trends in state and local law enforcement, when you look at some of these really um, significant instances of you know, local sheriffs having affiliations with the Oath Keepers, openly expressing their support for the Oath Keepers, having been, 
you know, donating to them every year for the past 10 years, I think it, it does have to be said that a lot of this does not require some, you know, big comprehensive outreach program by the Oath Keepers, in, you know, into every, you know, local law enforcement mailbox over the past 10 years, when in reality, they have been expressing a lot of the sentiments that we have seen, especially at the local level, a lot of these spaces show support from to some degree. You know, it's also interesting to think about the sort of the historical trend lines, like I said before, that there's different sort of epochs of the group, right? I mean, they were founded in 2009. Around that time, we saw a large increase uh, in domestic extremist organizations, and particularly militias, re reviving that sort of mentality that they'd had in activism they'd had previously. That was a lot to do with Obama. I mean, he was the first black president, and there's a lot of uh, sort of underlying and antipathy towards that, the frustrations with the, the expression of a, of a black male being the lead figure in the country, it's hard to separate that from the early sort of, if you want to call it recruitment, because again, like John pointed out, it's bi-directional. There are people that found them on their own. There were others that were, they intended to intentionally pull people in. Um, so if we look at sort of like the, the, I don't want to call them catalytic moments, but there are, there are key moments within the life cycle of the Oath Keepers that really drove um, more around the idea of narratives, right? So we've got post-2001, post-9-11 narratives that really drove a lot of the broader militia revival. We have Obama coming in, the fear of leftist uh, seizing of guns and the, you know, the, the classic understandings of, of far-right anti-government mentalities that have been around for decades, right? These aren't new. But what is new and what did, did shift was sort of the response to things like Katrina, where it, people really felt that the government had truly stepped over the line. Uh, they were confiscating and putting people on lockdowns, which is a really good forecast for what we saw two years ago. Uh, and then we start to get these broad social movement protests that are, that are really focused on uh, sort of like a, 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 a really harsh look at America's racial uh, structures and, and identity of American identity when it comes to race. And that rankled people, right? I mean, it's, it's really, you have to look in the mirror and look at yourself really hard and ask difficult questions in that time frame. And so you see Oath Keepers implicitly start to react to that, you know, and we see people move in and move out of the organization at the same time. We get other events like the attack uh, by, a, by an Islamic terrorist on uh, Marine Corps recruitment centers. And that actually became a, a very acute moment of recruitment for the Oath Keepers. They, they intentionally put flyers in mailboxes and made sure they were on the street corners and put themselves out and talked to media at those recruitment centers around the country because they saw that as, as John pointed out earlier, themselves clo cloaking themselves in that flag and truly being the guardians of the Republic at that point. Uh, they felt that they were filling a need that the government could not fill by protecting the posts where you know, military personnel weren't allowed to carry weapons, right? Um, and then the, the, the last few years, what we've really seen when it comes to recruitment is this integration of broader digital conspiracy theories and identities like QAnon at a grassroots level. And I think what's, what's really interesting about that is it's sort of implicitly and slightly less implicitly sort of suggests that there's a, a, a considerable shift on the right. And I think we can all agree that there has been a shift on the right post-2016. But what we see in Oath Keepers is that as that QAnon mentality takes hold, more and more of the rank and file are actually talking to the QAnon narratives, 
the recruitment aspects also reflect that. And, and we start to see and understand better why they gravitated towards Stop to Steal, why they gravitated towards Alex Jones. And those recruitment elements uh, and, and the narratives they wrote to bring people in uh, became more acutely focused on those notions. And I think uh, a really pertinent example of kind of not just that, that top-down messaging, but also the, the bottom-up seeding of some of these narratives in these broader spaces. I mean, the, the perfect example of that is the relationship between not just Oath Keepers and, and the Three Percenter Movement, but Oath Keepers and the Constitutional Sheriffs, right? The Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. Um, you know, the founder of that organization, Richard Mack, is a, is a founding member of, of the Oath Keepers, right? And, and the Constitutional Sheriffs really, you know, embracing this idea that, you know, the, the sovereign citizen type ideology that that the, the, this local sheriff, right, the, the county sheriff is the highest authority in the country, you know, can override federal law enforcement, can override officers of the federal government and can can effectively invalidate what they what they view to be, again, unconstitutional, tyrannical um, laws, regulations. And I think that's that's a really important consideration here is this kind of element of permissiveness that has pervaded around a lot of the activities of a group like the Oath Keepers, which, you know, as, as we've kind of discussed here, you know, have not been consistently engaging in violent acts of terrorism over the past 10, 11 years per se, but have continually been establishing themselves in these very delicate flashpoint situations, armed and prepared to engage in conflict against their perceived enemy in those moments, which is often the federal government. So then this embrace of Q, um, I mean, are we, are we seeing sort of more racist and anti-Semitic strains within the Oath Keepers, or do they sort of reject racism and anti-Semitism and kind of uh, posture themselves as an inclusive group? Yeah, they definitely posture themselves as an inclusive group. And, and by definition, you know, they do not identify as um, racialists, right? I, they, 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 don't, uh, they don't present themselves like you get with the KKK or that you get with a lot of the neo-Nazi organizations and the acceleration, neo-fascist accelerationist groups that are predominant today. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't racism within the ranks, right? I mean, we can stretch definitions or fit definitions of racism that would matter uh, when we talk about immigration, right? The response to immigration has a tendency to be more aligned with that of white nationalists and uh, white supremacists. Um, I think it, it, it really comes down to looking at individuals and that's an uh, in individual chapters. Uh, Rhodes himself has been very clear that, you know, he's part Hispanic uh, and that makes him not a racist, which, you know, we've heard this argument before, but we've not also seen over statements of racism from him, uh, we've seen far more consistently adherence to broader narratives that I think we would generally consider to be um, nationalistic, isolationist, uh, at times xenophobic. Um, but you know, if you look through all of their founding documents, if you look through their bylaws, you're not going to see anything that says you can't be anybody but white. Right, you're not you. You can't be anybody but male and white, or, or a landowner. Like these things don't exist within within their their guiding documents. So I think that challenges um, the notions that you know are they racist? Uh, Sam Jackson's done quite a bit of uh, work on the Oath Keepers. Uh, he's you know easily the, the leading expert on their group, and uh, you know I think he's made it very clear that this is sort of the case that you can't 
just because some militias are racist and some activity aligns with racist activity of others does not automatically paint the Oath Keepers as racist. Um, it's challenging. I mean, I think honestly, it, it becomes challenging. We can look at, like I said before, we can look at individuals and say like, yep, that's hella racist. That's not really cool. Uh, I would definitely classify it that way. But then when we try to take that and apply it to the whole, kind of loses its salience and it's really more difficult. And in terms of anti-Semitism, I think, you know, if we get the question of the QAnon element, right? I mean, I think QAnon as, as a whole is, is very, um, very much in that camp of, of deriving from anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories that preceded it. Um, more and more, we see it drifting towards open anti-Semitism in, in certain areas of the internet. Um, you know, my, my evaluation of Rhodes' appearances on Infowars with uh, Alex Jones makes me feel that perhaps there is some anti-Semitism there that's either implicit or hidden, um, but it, you know, we try to like say definitively, we can't really say. Yeah, and I think when you really try and kind of start breaking down a lot of these groups domestically, like the Oath Keepers, the Percenters, Boogaloo, again, I, much like Matt, I would, I would um, defer to Sam Jackson uh, on nearly all things Oath Keepers at this point. Um, and I think, you know, he's, he, he's laid out a very compelling categorization of right-wing extremism in the U.S. with these kind of overlapping circles of anti-government, nativist, and racist with the, you know, the obviously significant caveat here that, you know, those, those lines are overlapping and they're very, very blurred, right? And just because the primary driver of this group's mobilization is anti-authority, anti-government, much like a group like the Boogaloo, right? It does not mean that within that kind of large umbrella that there are not individuals who hold those views. And again, much like we saw at January 6th, that does not mean that they are not willing to either, again, as the government alleges, either directly or indirectly work with other white wing, right wing groups that may hold those views or um, you know, collaborate with, engage with a wider range of individuals in that right wing space that, that certainly do hold those views. So then I, I kind of want to uh, pull the picture out a bit. How do we place the Oath Keepers within the kind of far right milieu? How do, like, for instance, what are their interactions with the Proud Boys, uh, with Nazis, with various accelerationist groups? Like, what, how do they sort of, how do they position themselves? And then from the outside, how do we interpret that positioning? Yeah, I think over over the lifespan, we saw the Oath Keepers willing to at least tacitly engage with and appear alongside groups like Proud Boys, right? I'm thinking like, um, you know, hot, hot spots like the Battle for Berkeley, right? Um, and, and similar instances like that, demonstrations um, with groups like Patriot Prayer, um, you know, instances in, I think, 2017, 2018, when the Oath Keepers were very willing to serve as this kind of, you know, security detail, as they long have at, at many of these events for, you know, any, any variety of right-wing extremist groups, um, Vanguard America, Identity Europa, anti-Muslim groups, um, these kind of marches against Sharia. Um, so again, even if they are not explicitly coming out with, um, you know, virulent 
you know, anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim rhetoric, even if they are constraining themselves, you know, to try and appeal to this kind of idea of vanguards of, of the Republic, as Matt said, I think it is, it is very important to understand that they, when it suits their interests, as it often has, they are quite willing to engage with other actors in the, in this right-wing space. Yeah, you know, I think I think ultimately we can see, like John said, there's there's hot spots, right? It, it's a really great way of thinking about it because that's sort of I think the the broader issue of talking about the landscape as a whole is that there's hot spots of activity. We got battle for Berkeley that leads into the alt rights culmination with Charlottesville, which leads starts you know the trough down back up to January sixth. Uh, and I think when we talk about Oath Keepers' position within that, you know, their comfort levels with the three percenters, where you have overlapping founding peoples. Uh, where you have um, the, the, the constitutional sheriffs or CSPOA, uh, the, the, the story of the Oath Keepers becomes one of co-travelers. We really get this notion that, um, you know, Seamus uh, at POE talks very, you know, and John, when they wrote this, talks about uh, Rhodes is the, the, the forest gump of the extremist movement, right? Um, so I think when we, when we really look at this, what we're talking about is their, their presence at these key moments and it's not so much they were the driving factor. Rhodes is very good at, at hiding that risk for himself and the organization. There's always autonomy within the local chapters, and, and they've disavowed folks that have done things they didn't like. Um, but what we see is that they, they have a tendency to latch on to the big moments, they, these, these spots where they can really up that brand. Uh, now, obviously, that's a question of whether that's a thing more for Rhodes versus the Oath Keepers as a whole. Um, but I think really in, in, in reality, when we see their presence alongside of skull mask wearing neo-fascists like Ram, uh, Rise Above Movement at the Battle for Berkeley, it's not because they're thinking, oh, hell yeah, Ram's out there. Let's go, let's go beat in some Antifa skulls with them. No, it's because they're seeing the same narratives that the accelerationists and these other hardened neo-fascists and, and, and racists are, are also latching on to, right? There's a broader mobilization of the right that's really fixated on specific things and it's catching a broad ideological wave of individuals and groups that want sort of similar same things which is hey liberalism and democracy today is not really working for us uh and we just have different solutions as to what exactly that looks like on the outside on the on the backside but for right now let's all get out there and say screw the left do this blah 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 all these kind of mentalities and these actions uh and they all share this one really key tenant to that which is the only solution that we're starting to see available to us is taking more and more direct violent action to make our solutions viable. So then um, just kind of doing a sidestep with Rhodes, do you regard him as as influential or influenced in the sense like you, you mentioned co-travelers and kind of his fluidity um, with like interacting with other groups? It kind of reminded me of like Metzger or Mason, kind of this idea of, you know, you 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 do a, a year with Christian identity movement, you go to the Klan, you come back to the Nazis, and then you kind of begin sure. to spin off and connect other groups. So is Rhodes, is he an influencer in that sense? Or is he more being influenced? And he's sort of, he's changing his position, according to he's changing his position to be on par with other groups. 
Does that make sense? Like in the sense it, that it, it does. Yeah. It's, it's a really good question. I, I like that you're, you're sort of hitting it against uh, Metzger and, and others, uh, you know, at Mason. Um, I think he's a little closer to a Mason than he is to a Metzger though. Metzger's a little bit more uh, devious in his, his machinations and stratagems. Um, you know, I don't really see Rhodes as somebody that has these uh, large grand designs for a broader rights pushback against XYZ. Um, and I think part of the, the differentiation that we have to make between Metzger and Mason and, and Rhodes is that Rhodes still buys into the system. He just wants to still, he just wants to dramatically change it from what, what it is now and to be more illiberal versus liberal in the sense of less expansive, uh, more libertarian, I guess, in a way this frame it rather than egalitarian and open. Um, whereas Mason and Metzger both looked at it and said, the hell with all that, let's start a whole new fascist thing. Um, so I think, I think that's, again, it's, it's a bit of a simplification, right? But, but I think ultimately that's sort of the divide between them in terms of like his role as a uh, influence versus influ influence versus influencer. Um, he's a bit of both, right? I mean, he's, he's influenced by others. I think he, he's influenced by the power that comes with latching onto certain things, kind of like a little, little, uh, one of the little things, leeches, right? He, he kind of like leeches on to certain things and, and really goes after it. Um, him and Alex Jones have this sort of coexisting behavior that way. Um, and it works for him, right? I mean, they, they get these uh, promotions and, and grandeur for their personality and the media eats it up sometimes. And he's really good at manipulating that, uh, you know, and I think that's important to note. Um, but at the same time, he's influenced by, or he's an influencer in the sense that he did, create a, a movement in a way. Um, he, he was very new networked within um, the, the space that he was in with the threepers and the CSPOA, but I wouldn't put him at a level that's you know groundbreaking, right? He didn't revolutionize militias, ironic pun there, but uh, you know it, he, he just sort of sat in a comfortable space and, and his actions spoke louder than his words uh, at a lot of times where he talked a really big game for years and people were always questioning, oh, Shit, is this the time that the Oath Keepers finally do terrorism? And are they going to show up and do something terrible? Or how do we understand this or the other about the way that they showed up with guns and all this other armament? But he always made sure to pull back and protect himself. And I think ultimately it's, it's less about his influence, influencer role, uh, and more about his role as surviving his uh, personal brand, you know? And I think, and again, this is largely conjecture, you know, largely based on what the government has put forth in a lot of this. Um, but you know, he's, he's a really good surfer, you know, he's, he's ridden the wave, he has been able to latch on to, as, as Matt said, pretty much every significant right wing um, flashpoint, every single large narrative that has come into play since 2009, when he founded the group at Lexington and Concord. Um, he has managed to take every single big event, right, Bundy Ranch, Malheur Refuge, every single instance in which he can credibly claim that this is go time. This is when the shit's hitting the fan. The this is it. The government's really coming this time. We have to stand up, rise up. And then he gets some donations. He throws in a PayPal link um, and then life goes on. And then he finds the next, the next wave to ride. Um, and again, I, th I think there is a lot of uh, really interesting considerations to make of how he kind of shifted this kind of, um, surfing from the, the early years into the past four or five years where he has really embraced a lot of the conspiracy theories that we've seen become mainstreamed in, in the right today. Um, and again, that's, that's obviously what leads them to the U.S. Capitol, as the government alleges on, on January 6th. And so I think that's obviously 
a really important consideration in all this. Yeah, you know, there's there's charges even within his own ranks that like he's just running a grift. He's, I mean, look at how much money he spent just before going to January sixth. What was it, John? Tens of thousands of dollars, where where he, yeah. he goes and buys all this equipment that there's. I mean, if he uses that on January sixth, he's screwed legally, right? Or like we're we're talking a whole different ball game here when it comes to the oath keepers and their political violence. But but there's a lot of dissent uh, over the years and people that have left the movement, right? Entirely left, uh, not the movement, the organization, uh, explicitly over his alleged improprieties with funding. Um, you know, it, it, it's in many ways it's a uh, a national local split between the organization, right? It's organizational structures. There's a national chapter. There's local factions and chapters, and uh, there's you know defined roles. Uh, there's a board. All these things. But in a, in a lot of respects, it all filters right back up to one guy, right? And and he benefits the most of everybody, arguably, from it. Um, but at the, at the same time, I think I think it's important to, to look back at some of the things he's actually said when we talk about this differentiation of his behaviors. You know, he's he's been very clear of, with what he thinks might happen versus what he does. Um, so you know, there's a, there's a statement he made in. Uh, after a Patriot prayer, I remember was 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 shot in the streets uh, in, in Portland in August 2020. He says, "The first shot has been fired, brother. Civil war is here right now. We'll give Trump one last chance to declare this a Marxist insurrection and suppress it as his duty demands. If he fails to do his duty, we will do ours against all enemies, foreign domestic." He quotes their little, uh, you know, oath. Uh, I think this really exemplifies him, right? Big game, talks a huge game, but in the background, there's a lot of questions about how much he's actually going to follow through on that and what that actually means and as researchers and and as you know commentators we have a responsibility to really pierce through that but we also have to make sure we're taking it seriously because you never know like we saw on january 6th and again i mean not to not to hit the point too hard but you know it is you know when you look at the the fundraising the financing of Stuart Rhodes and the oath keepers i think it is it, it is fair to kind of cast an eye over it and kind of wonder how much of it was real legitimate, uh, you know, fundraising to start the revolution and how much of it was to kind of backfill some of his own uh, money troubles, right? You know, I think the, the recent government detention memo um, has said that he hasn't paid federal income tax in a number of years. Um, bank records that the Wall Street Journal put out showed him spending Oath Keepers funds at an auto repair shop, at a pet store, adult goods shop, um, phone games, online perfume shop. Um, and so again, like it is um, a fair question, you know, whether whether you're an extremism researcher or a deuce paying Oath Keepers member to ask, you know, both where is the money coming in from? And, and in this case, at least, where, where is the money going when it comes to roads? That's a, you actually, you guys answered the next question I had, which was where is the money like coming from? But I guess, like reading the sedition indictment, it just kind of the most mind blowing part of that indictment was literally like there's just parts of it where they're just going to the gun shop and dropping five to ten thousand dollars. And it's just like, like, so he's running his credit card or he's giving up ten thousand dollars in cash. And I think up to I think the final number is about thirty to forty thousand dollars and not even in weapons in just scopes and accessories. Um, but it's just kind of fascinating to me, like, um, where is, where is the money coming from? And how is that money structured? Is it really just small donors? Or, or is it there something like, more shady going on? 
or is it really just like small donors and just kind of Rhodes is just grifting his way through it? Yeah, um, I mean, so certainly we can see a window into some of it when you look at what what they have claimed in terms of dues paying members. And when you kind of start looking at the breakdown of their annual membership versus kind of longer term memberships versus, um, you know, um, a, a lifetime membership, kind of like what you saw with, um, you know, famously Iced Earth's John Schaefer. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the point you just made right there, just, I mean, you know, of how much he was willing to spend on, again, as you said, not, not firearms, but components for firearms. I, I think it is, yeah, about allegedly, you know, 20,000 on his way to DC before Jan 6, 20,000 on his way home. Um, you know, I think that that kind of represents this, this really interesting dichotomy that I think Matt and I have talked about a good amount when it comes to, um, you know, the, both the character of Stuart Rhodes and the significance of the Oath Keepers writ large, right, which is like, you know, they speak in this military lingo, they view themselves as like, you know, these defenders of democracy. Um, and then on, on, on the other hand, they're kind of doing doing some kind of LARPy stuff, right? And they're, you know, having OPSEC, you know, using signal chats, which it, it looks like the government has been able to kind of rebuild a bit. And then they're posting photos of themselves on the Capitol steps that day. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it really does create this kind of interesting question of, you know, bumbling into success almost for, for some of these actions, right? Like it's, um, and this thing we, we've, we talked a lot about when it comes to kind of the social media evidence for a lot of the Jan 6 defendants is that, and I, I think rings especially true for the Oath Keepers is that <clears throat> they were in many of these instances very willing to brag about what they've done, to post publicly about what they've done. And in many of those cases, it's, it's very easy to kind of look at that and you know, almost wonder like, how could you give this right to a DOJ prosecutor? Um, but for a lot of them, they went there thinking they would succeed. They were in the halls of Congress thinking that they would be able to prevent the certification of the election and and see it through and and you know walk out on January sixth in victory on the right side of history that day. And so you know I think Rhodes is a really good example of some of that some of that dichotomy and kind of you know how it's easy to write them off, but then also you know when, when you look at what almost happened, I think it's always important to consider. Yeah, I mean the other thing about the money side of it, you know, and the, the equipment purchasing is ammo is not cheap. I mean. You can't, you can't really go around pretending to be a militia or actually being a militia or whatever the hell you want to call yourselves uh, these days and, and not spend a decent amount of cash on this stuff. You know, I think there's also, this, is, this applies to the broader uh, context of, of armed groups in the United States at this point writ large is it costs money to do these things. And there, there are actual components of this that go far beyond um, tactical benefits of buying specific equipment uh, items and modifications for your, your platform is that there's a, there's a status element. I mean, I think, I think if you look at the, the way that a lot of these armed groups now, it's particularly on the right, uh, and, and Boogaloo is a really good example of this, and the three two in a lot of ways now, because they're changed from what they used to be, three percenters, I should say. Um, you know, there's, there's this sort of engagement with social media uh, and the firearms as, as they have them in a way that's much more identity focused as opposed to, um, you know, as a whole, right? We're talking broad strokes. We're not talking every single person that owns a firearm is obsessed with their social media identity with it. 
Uh, but but there's a there's a real clear evidence of signal virtue signaling when it comes to uh, the use of and promotion of your firearm on on social media. And I think that that within the movement spaces within these smaller cliques that you know that having the better equipment is going to put you in a higher status within your clique, and that's just a reality. And that's something that may help explain why people are willing to spend so much money. Like we can go back to like, where the hell did they get all this money? Cause you know, I, I can go to the range and I can drop a good amount of money and enjoy myself, but I can't imagine myself spending $20,000, uh, actually 40,000 within the span of a week on, on this equipment. Um, and I'm gainfully employed. So it's like, it's, I mean, there's real questions about where this stuff comes from. And I think that's valid for, especially law enforcement and the January 6th commission and others to sit down and say like, Hey, these are signals. These are really important signals to be asking ourselves that if they're not out using it on a regular basis, where's that going? How are they getting that set up? And what is it they intend to do with that in the end? Because that money is not gonna just sit there. It's gonna go towards something. Um, John made a point a minute ago, we might get into this a little bit later though, it, it, You know, as we talk more about maybe their role on January 6th, but I'll foreshadow it a bit. It's really important to remember that a lot of the people that showed up on January 6th truly believed that what they were doing was in the best interest of this country. They truly believe they were acting to save this country. Perverted notions or misguided notions or downright exploitative, if you're talking about the accelerationists and some of the Proud Boys that were there, it doesn't fully matter. The reality is they truly felt that that was the best direction for the country to go. And I think that's something we should be deeply concerned about, frankly. Let's, uh, on that note, let's kind of switch footing. So November 5th, uh, Biden wins the election November 8th or whatever the Tuesday was. Um, and then you, you kind of have this stop the steal meme that's developing. And then, you know, you start beginning the, the, the roll up to January 6th. So if we could, before January 6th, where were the Oath Keepers? What was sort of Stuart Rhodes, his sort of his thinking on the subject? And then how did that begin to translate into action on January 6th? Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, you know, like Rhodes was very much involved in the, the Alex Jones ecosystem. Uh, he, he's, he's showing, Oath Keepers are showing up alongside Roger Stone and some of the other Proud Boys mobilizations prior to January 6th in the, the sort of, even the pre-election timeframe. But even, it goes all the way back to 2016. In 2016, Oath Keepers begins a very stark division of their beliefs and activities away from their past, or I should say deviation on division, they deviate almost wholly into the Trump uh, sort of broader world, right? Like they, they get really sucked into the, the MAGA sphere, if you want to call it that. Um, in 2016, they start talking about stolen elections. Now, Hillary Clinton's always been a divisive figure for the far right in this country. There's a lot of conspiracy theories that center around her. But in 2017, Oath Keepers launched an, or, an operation they called Operation Defend J20. Ironically, the same day that they like, or the, the when we're talking about some of the, the, the you know, the, oh my God, what am I trying to say here? The uh, swearing in of the president. There we go. Um, they, they were really concerned in the inverse situation that leftists would try to stop Trump from becoming president. So we've got this deeply ironic frame out of their next four years, in the entirety of the Trump administration's existence. And you know, as we get to November, you know, he leads a rally in, 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 in Virginia about Stop the Steal, uh, and then he just barrels into J6. Um, I think John probably has some ideas he wants to throw out there, too, on, on this. I'll, I'll let him expand more. No, I think, I mean, that's all absolutely right. And I think that when you 
look at not, not just, I mean, the, the seditious conspiracy indictment gives some really good, interesting details. Um, but, you know, I think a, a lot of this has been set forth in, in the public view uh, for, for a while now. And I think that it, it really is important and you really can't overstate how much of what took place, not just for the Oath Keepers, but for this broader Stop the Steal conspiracy took place in plain sight. You know, it's like when, you know, when someone tells you what they are, you believe them. Um, this really is when you look at the public statements that Rhodes made from, again, from November 8th, November 9th, right, days after the election is decided, all the way through his private communications that the government has alleged that he made, you know, on the eve of January 6th, he consistently maintained this talking point, right? This idea that we will be called in as this, as the militia, we, you know, the insurrection act will be declared. We will come in and we will stop whatever's going on. That shouldn't be happening now in, in, in these scenarios, they obviously envision that there would be some, you know, large scale counter protest um, by Antifa, by, by the left on January 6th, but nonetheless, they clearly had this consistent messaging. I mean, you know, if you look at the government indictment, they they lay out, you know, November 9th, a member, an individual who is was later charged, who is affiliated with the Oath Keepers, Thomas Caldwell, reaches out to Rhodes to give him some breakdown of a reconnaissance trip he reportedly took to D.C. to coordinate planning with Rhodes for an upcoming operation in Washington, D.C. I mean, this is days after the election is decided. Um Weeks after that, the government alleges that this um, uh, a segment of this this Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers held a training on unconventional warfare, and then from from that point forward, you know, it's it's just consistent allegations of um, either private conversations or public declarations by Rhodes um, at at a number of these Stop the Steal events that. If Biden becomes president, we will fight. It will be violent. It will be a bloody and desperate fight. It cannot be avoided. Um, the North Carolina chapter has a training session. Um, Rhodes starts having uh, allegedly a number of uh, encrypted conversations with various chapters, telling them you have to come to D.C. This is you know shit is hitting the fan. This is it's real this time. Not just a fundraising opportunity. This is real. It is happening. Um, and so, again, I, I think it is it is important to, again, not, not this is not new from the Seditious Conspiracy indictment, but it really, obviously, it, it names Rhodes for the first time. But person one, Rhodes, in this instance, is the kind of central spoke to this wheel of the government allegations of this conspiracy. Um, the underlying actions, the overt conduct by the members of the conspiracy has has long been known, you know, in, whether it's individuals allegedly bringing weapons to the Comfort Inn in Boston, uh, individuals moving up the Capitol steps in the stack formation, this second stack of individuals who uh, left, um, I believe the allegation is that it's Roger Stone's security detail and drove over to the Capitol on a pair of golf carts and then formed a second stack, uh, complete with a German shepherd that one of the Oath Keepers owned, and then allegedly made a second breach 
just, you know, I think 20, 30 minutes after the first stack is alleged to have breached the Capitol. Um, and so, you know, this, again, this, the, the pieces are all there. The, the allegations lay out a, a very clear, you know, almost day by day breakdown of exactly what Stuart Rhodes was doing, exactly who he was communicating with, and how he was laying the groundwork for, you know, his organization that is, you know, shaped in his image, the Oath Keepers, to have a central role in preventing the peaceful transfer of presidential power on January 6th. So then I kind of want to take a step back and look at that that indictment, the seditious conspiracy indictment. So it would be accurate to say that the Oath Keepers planned in, in showing up and, and challenging the election or the, the counting of the, the electoral ballots. How coordinated was it with other groups? Because I think uh, reading the Robert Costa book, uh, you kind of get this sense at, at least the, the way that they kind of portray the Willard War Room, that there was a lot of coordination going on with the Willard War Room, with Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, and, the, and that kind of uh, set of people with people on the ground, people near, in and around the Capitol. So uh, it is, from reading the indictment, from doing the research, do you get a sense that the Oath Keepers and Stuart Rhodes was kind of coordinating with other parts, you know, maybe not Steve Bannon, but other parts of, of this kind of uh, plan to, to stop the vote or, right. <laughs> yeah, 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 no. So in, in my view, I think that the reading of, you know, not just the seditious conspiracy indictment, but the previous six superseding indictments that the DOJ has brought forth, the, the various motions um, for detention, uh, motions against the, the defense motions to dismiss, um, they have all been predicated on at least originally this, this core charge of 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2, which is conspiracy to obstruct the congressional proceeding. In this case, the congressional proceeding to certify the results of, of the election. Um, and throughout the indictment, you see, and as more indictments have come out, you see more and more evidence of um, nodes, let's just say, between members of the Oath Keepers on that day, um, whether it is Roberto Menuda, whether it's Joshua James, whether it's potentially Jason Dolan, who has pleaded guilty, um, and with individuals who could be characterized as organizers of the Stop the Steal rally or speakers uh, in, in Roger Stone's case. And I think based on a, a reading of the indictment and based on the work of um, some other you know, excellent analysts um, and individuals who have reviewed this like Marcy Wheeler, um, I really see two distinct um, two distinct operations happening here uh, on the government side right now. Um, the first is the DOJ side from the bottom up on the crime scene, right? So you see that with the indictments against the Oath Keepers, against the Proud Boys, against Three Percenters, these groups who are alleged to have not just shown up that day for the sake of showing up, not just to see a rally, but who showed up with the intent to obstruct the proceeding. And now in the case of the Oath Keepers, alleged to have shown up to 
prevent the peaceful transfer of presidential power. And as we have seen, whether it's individuals from this security detail who were alleged to be at the Willard Hotel on the 5th, on the 6th, who are alleged to have been in the security detail for prominent individuals in the kind of stop the steal uh, movement, uh, it's, it's clear that that is what they appear to be shaping up to. And on the other side of that, from, from the top down, you have the work of the January 6th Select Committee, which is basically looking at a far broader and expansive set of conduct, not just constrained to um, explicitly illegal conduct that took place on Capitol grounds on that day, but the kind of broader trends of how we got to the events of January 6th. And we've seen from the subpoenas, from the criminal referrals so far, um, we've seen the conduct that they are intent on examining. And that ties to a lot of the individuals we've talked about today so far who are alleged to have not insignificant relationships to Stuart Rhodes, um, whether it's Alex Jones, whether it's Roger Stone, um, whether it's other individuals like Steve Bannon, like Mark Meadows. Um, and I think it's, it's really in this Oath Keepers indictment that you get to that kind of nexus point, maybe, um, that the, you know, the, um, the top of the DOJ side and the bottom of the Select Committee side, that, that intersection between rioters and organizers, right? When you look at some of the communications that um, are alleged to have taken place where individuals are communicating with um, Oath Keepers and those individuals have not been named at present, um, it does raise the question of, you know, are some of these movements by the DOJ designed to get individuals in the Oath Keepers conspiracy, maybe even potentially Stuart Rhodes to uh, plead guilty and flip and cooperate and, you know, potentially further assist the select committee and, and the DOJ in, in, in answering some of these really, really complex questions. So I'm going to try to answer the same question, but from a little bit of a different perspective, right? I mean, John has a really good grasp of the tactical, and I, I could listen to him for days talk about this and kind of have in the past. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think if we go back to two themes, right, the, that we talked about already, one is the co-travelers. That's the first theme. Two is this notion of hotspots within the broader uh, ecosystem of the far right and the sort of uh, illiberal or anti-democratic movement that we've seen emerge in the last, let's call it four to six years. Um, <clears throat> so when we, when we put that framing on it, we can go back and look at the Oath Keeper's behaviors in a way that uh, sort of gets at that question about how do they interact with others and does that in, in the past, and does that sort of allow us to better understand with some evidence lacking or some, some data not yet filled out, uh, is, was there cooperation leading into January 6th? Did they intend to go in and then cooperate with them? So if we go back to their engagements with individuals and groups that were a little bit more far afield of their own ideological stance, like Battle for Berkeley, well, we know that Patriot Prayer, who was the, one of the leading organizers of, of those sequence of events in the alt-right, uh, led by Richard Spencer and a few of the others that were, they were sort of figureheads of that space. Rhodes and the Oath Keepers in general had communications with those individuals, not just standard communications of, hey, we're going to be there too, great, see you there, um, or don't, you know, don't consider us an enemy, don't mess with us, don't F with us, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the standard deconfliction stuff you might see. 
they, they coordinated, they talked, they, they, they had ongoing discussions and dialogue regarding the way that they were going to engage that way that day. They shared a very clear outgroup enemy, which was Antifa that might show up. They were both incensed by the notions of free speech being violated. Uh, this is again, their perceptions. So Battle for Berkeley gives us a really good idea of how they engage with others that are probably engaged in a little bit more nefarious behaviors from the outset and intending to do so from the beginning. We also see as they progress throughout their, the Trump era, uh, the Oath Keepers, a consistent re-engagement with groups like the Proud Boys, individuals like Roger Stone, uh, Alex Jones, and others around the same narrative structure of Stop the Steel and um, sort of the notions of Marxist insurrection and terrorist activity. So we're seeing it from a different perspective now, not just latching onto key events, but bigger, broader mobilizations within society that the far right, and I do mean the far right, like hardcore neo-fascist accelerationists are leading the charge on. Uh, this is important, right? So as we go into January 6th, we start to ask ourselves, how does their past behavior inform what we see on January 6th? Well, we see a lot of the same co-travelers we saw pre-Trump showing up again. The same travelers we saw during the Trump era showing up again on January 6th. And who's there in the center of it? The Forrest Gump. John, I know I, I said I'd never use that metaphor, but here I am using it twice in the same podcast. So damn it all. Uh, but no, the Forrest Gump of extremism is yet again at the forefront of this. And once more, co-traveling alongside of some fairly concerning actors and people that have been as much as himself, Rhodes, very clear about what they intended to do that day. I think it's also really important to look at some of the things that precipitated activity on the ground, both in DC and associated with the election outside of DC. Uh, you know, following uh, President Trump's statements uh, to the proud, uh, you know, when he was pressed about dealing with the Proud Boys or, or sending a message to them as their behaviors ramped up uh, around the debate time, right? Uh, it was the, the, the statement of stand back and stand by. Right. We can discuss the merits of whether or not it was an intentional silent you know, message to them or not. I kind of fall on the probably not side just because I'm not entirely sure he cares that much about them particularly. Uh, but it, what we do see is a very clear change in their stance. And they show up on December 12th in D.C., very intent on creating havoc and mayhem and fighting people and stabbing people and all these other things that occurred. So we talk about their co-travelers. Well, we, we can see with their co-travelers an increase of behavior after certain statements corresponding to uh, clear, you know, dissenting views on the vi viability of the election leading into the, the election, right? This is even before the election starts, we, we get this. So the behavior afterwards gives us a clear signal that these things are mobilizing co-travelers within the both keeper space. Then we go to the second element of this, and that is the, uh, the sort of after the election in, inter-period between the, the, the election results being determined, finalized, right, or in the process of being finalized, since some of the states took a little bit longer than others to certify the election, and January 6th itself, uh, where Congress makes its final determination. In November, following the election's results, we see a concerted effort to pressure Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who, not just from Trump, but from groundswell entities, including the Oath Keepers, is pressured, harassed, and uh, sort of publicly uh, pushed back on for not adhering to the request by President Trump at the time to find the votes, right? So we see these moments that start to crystallize the, the trajectory of what we get leading into January 6th. So when we ask ourselves, is there coordination? It almost becomes a question of, 
are all the co-travelers aimed in the same direction? And if so, and if the behaviors we're seeing are all escalatory towards the same thing, they're all sharing the same goals, they're all sharing the same narratives, it's in my mind, it's less a question of, do we see evidence for it? And it's more so a question of, well, where's the evidence for it? Because everybody's behaving the exact same way. We see very clear indications that they're intending to do the same thing. The rhetoric is clear. The stated goals are clear. So it is almost illogical to presume that there wasn't coordination on that day. Now, that's obviously a bit of an analytical quandary, right? Because we're flipping the natural researcher mentality of, okay, let's prove out the theory. Instead, we're starting at the end and looking at some of the influences and asking ourselves, well, how do we find the, the we call the men in the middle, right? Like, where's that internal, that middle data that we can prove out both ends? Uh, so I think I think the January 6th Commission and law enforcement and the FBI have their, their work cut out for them to sort of tackle it from both perspectives, the, the approach that John outlined, and then from this bigger strategic and, and sort of meso and macro level picture, which is everything was leading towards this. They were very clear about it. So where's the evidence that proves out the coordination, right? And that's not proving guilt before innocence. That's very clear analytical logic that says the smoke is so hard that we can't see the fire, but we just have to get a point where we can actually see the fire. And I think um, one, one more little fun tactical level uh, point that I think uh, Marcy Wheeler has hit on extraordinarily well. Um, and because I love, um, you know, comparing real life figures to, to um, you know, other figures, um, is this idea that there was some degree of coordination that we just haven't seen evidence of yet when it comes to uh, what, what she has described Alex Jones as, which is uh, the Pied Piper of a lot of this, a lot of this activity tactically in specific moments on January 6th. And so when you consider that Joe Biggs, uh, who along with Ethan Nordine took up a mantle of leadership on the day as Enrique Tario is uh, sitting in a holding cell upon his arrival to DC. Um, when you consider that Biggs is a former employee of Alex Jones at Infowars, when you consider that um, you know the government allegation is that I think around 2.20, 2.30 p.m. is when this Oath Keeper stack is alleged to have breached the East Rotunda doors, when you consider that Biggs is alleged to have led his contingent of Proud Boys back around to the east side, along with a, a not insignificant number of other rioters. And when you consider that, um, at least um, in the allegations as it relates to uh, Owen Troyer, an InfraWars employee who's been charged, who was alongside Alex Jones that day, the implication is certainly that um, Troyer, Biggs, and Jones were in some way, shape, or form moving this kind of group of normies, as they refer to them, over back to the east side in a coordinated manner to enable a breach that then later took place by members of the Oath Keepers, some members of the Proud Boys, and um, a, a good number of your kind of average stop the steal uh, QAnon type individual on that day. And so I think these are, these are the threads that we've seen slowly pulled out in the past year and change by the DOJ. Um, you know, it is, it is slow going, you know? We're sitting here a year on with, you know, 730 individuals arrested, all being prosecuted by, you know, the, um, you know, one division of DOJ 
all being prosecuted in, in one DC district court. And so, you know, it is, it is slow going, but as we start to see some of these threads pulled out, we, we can kind of start to peel back some of that, some of that curtain and see what is certainly the, the outline of potentially a, a broader conspiracy here. So something that I, I kind of want you to examine is uh, the idea of a seditious conspiracy, because when, when that indictment dropped, my, my mind immediately goes to the Fort Smith trial of in the 80s that the federal government, the, the most important thing of that trial is that the federal government kind of botches it and they were using sedition as a way to uh, really up the ante, so to speak. Um, so I guess on the first layer and the first tier of this question is, what are the implications of a seditious conspiracy? And why, why, why are the Oath Keepers being charged with it as opposed to um, comparing it to the other prosecutions that are coming out of 1-6? I think, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the, the Oath Keepers are the only ones being charged with seditious conspiracy. So walk us through, what are the implications of that charge? And then what are the possible outcomes of a successful or maybe even a failed prosecution? Yeah, I mean, again, as as you kind of alluded to, um, this is a fairly um, unique and rarely tested uh, charge. Um, we saw it used several times in the past 20 years, um, a couple times against a variety of, of jihadist actors, um, once against the, the militia uh, up in Michigan. Um, and it, it, it is not without its, its shortcomings in terms of the, the, the success of this specific charge, um, especially against, against white militia, patriot or patriot militia uh, defendants, right? Um, but I think when you really start to unpack the, the allegations of, of the indictment, um, the first big difference, right, that's the obvious elephant here, is that it, it moved the crux of the allegation from they were attempting to obstruct this congressional proceeding that just so happened to be counting the, the electoral ballots to this was an activity that, in their own words, as the government alleges in this indictment, was designed to prevent the peaceful transfer of presidential power. That's really the that's really the key here. It, it can't be overstated. Um, and so a lot of that, at least to present, comes down to the evidence that the DOJ seems to have when you look at the public and private statements by Rhodes, when you look at the communications with his co-conspirators, when you look at his overt actions on that day. And I think really when you compare across to um, you know, other previous iterations of this, um, again, obviously the, the notable examples of when it has failed, which has kind of made this kind of a, um, the elephant in, in that room. I, I think the core difference here is that the sedition conspiracy charge at present really is, it's not the, the only charge that they're throwing at the Oath Keepers in this case. Um, the underlying information, the evidence they've collected, the overt acts that they've alleged were undertaken is largely the same. Uh, when you compare, you know, the first indictment all the way through to the sixth superseding indictment, all the way through to this new seditious conspiracy indictment, most of the 
overt acts that the government alleged happened. The um, planning to travel to DC, the stockpiling of firearms in the Boston Hotel to arm the quick reaction force, the use of force um, by at least one individual of the stack in this move up, up the Capitol steps is largely the same. Um, and so the, the skeleton of this prosecution has largely been constructed by the DOJ at this point. And so I think when you look at the core differences, in addition to some new, um, slightly different use of conspiracy charges in this new indictment that could potentially add to the criminal exposure of some of these defendants, what it really does is make the explicit tie from what has been charged um, against the Proud Boys and against some members of the Three Percenters Militia, um, which is that uh, which is that conspiracy um, that you know a, a lot of individuals have been charged with that 18 USC 1512 obstruction. Um, it is um, you know a, 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 one of the one of the most used felony charges in this case, but. What the allegations against the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters lack, at least at present, is the explicit tie-in, whether it's um, previous conduct, whether it's social media evidence, whether it's communications between various members of the Proud Boys and leadership of the Proud Boys or members of the Proud Boys and uh, other militia groups potentially, is that explicit statement that allows them to make the connection, not just to the obstruction of the congressional proceeding, but to this um, predetermined, pre-planned desire to go to the U.S. Capitol to prevent the peaceful transfer of presidential power. And again, I think when you, certainly when you look at the, at the allegations against um, some, some of the Proud Boys uh, at this point, and I think that's an important point, is that Unlike the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys are not charged in one big kind of um, 17, 18 individual indictment that makes them all co-conspirators and therefore liable for the conduct of their, of their other defendants. The Proud Boys are really charged in a bunch of these kind of divided cases. Um, you have Matthew Green, who pleaded guilty uh, as a co-conspirator to Dominic Pozzola, who's the Proud Boy who's alleged to sma have smashed the window with a riot shield. And then you have um, you know, the, the leadership of the Proud Boys, including Ethan Nordine, including Joe Biggs, uh, including Zachary Rell out of Philadelphia. Um, and now they're all charged with largely the same underlying conduct, the same overt actions that led them to the Capitol that day. But I think what, what you haven't seen yet is the government make that public connection between the mobilization to the Capitol and um, an overt attempt by the Proud Boys to disrupt this, the, um, the, the, the peaceful transfer of power. Now, again, that's not to say it's not coming, as we saw with, with this indictment, um, th these things take time. And so I don't think there's something that necessarily sets the Oath Keepers apart in terms of the statements. I just think that when you look at the statements by Stuart Rhodes that have been included in this indictment, they are just so obviously designed to get to that point of that, that just conspiracy that, um, again, as, as the government alleges, clearly puts him at the center of this massive conspiracy that we've been looking at for over a year. So like before, I'm going to try to take a different approach to answering the same question. Uh, again, the tactical is just phenomenal stuff, right? Um, but I want to try to think about it from a, from a more um, thematic level. Uh, and, and I think when we when we talk about the January 6th um, charges and, and the investigation, 
we're sort of in new territory. This is, this is something that's never really happened before. This is a, an event that has no equal in American history outside of the Civil War, if you want to make that comparison, which I think is sometimes somewhat apt in this, in this regard in terms of massive social impact, right? Uh, and the implications for continued governance of the federal government. Um, that new territory, it sort of sits within a much longer history of militia activity, patriot movement activity that overtly stated mentalities against the US government's authority and, and, and uh, legal, uh, well, again, authority. Um, but but this is the first time we're seeing overt action taken by the by the oath keepers. I think that's really important. We're talking about sedition, right? It's, it's, it's this behavior that is uh, in conduct, right? It's beyond the speech. They, they acted on it, and they acted on it in a very consistent manner with the speech, in a very clear manner towards the the authority of the of the of the government and the state, right? Uh, and that that changes the dynamic a lot. And I think that's why we're seeing a dramatic shift towards the Oath Keepers. Um, I'm going to go a little afield with this and say that, like, comparatively between the, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, the, the rhetoric towards the state has consistently been far more egregious from the, the, the Oath Keepers than it has been from the Proud Boys. Proud Boys are much more concerned with nebulous notions of Western society and uh, white identity and all these other concepts that have much less to do with the continued presence of the U.S. president in a lawful elected manner. Uh, Oath Keepers, however, have a much longer history of talking about things from a revolutionary standpoint, particularly calling out entities and institutions of the U.S. federal government and uh, like the, the, the Bureau of Land Management and other entities that they've stood against at various rally points throughout their history. Um, you know, so that, that stands in stark contrast there. Now, if we snap that into focus about the long history of the militia and the patriot movement uh, rejection of the U.S. federal government's authority, we also see a long history of complicated uh, investigatory successes. I think we've seen they're bringing, uh, you know, you mentioned yourself about the successes of some sedition charges in the past, right? Seditious conspiracy that failed. Um, I think what we can see though, is that throughout the years, militias and, and, and white power movements and uh, these, these sort of neo-fascist groups, have, they have a, the government has a much harder time successfully prosecuting them and getting them to a point where you know, for many different reasons, whether it's uh, societal juries seem to think that it's okay that they do certain things and there's variance and identity structures that Im impact that, like that's a whole different conversations, right? Uh, but the, the reality is the government itself has had a difficult time tackling domestic extremism from pretty much our start, right? Like this is not uh, a new element of American existence. We've had issues with this since our expansion out West and, and onwards and, and even before that. So I think when we talk again about the sedition, we're talking about this overt action. And when we talk specifically to the Oath Keepers, their history has been one, like we've said many times in, uh, so far in this episode, that Rhodes has pulled them back, right? He's, he's been very clear there's a line that they're physically willing not to cross. And they've always been very careful not to actually, you know, do something like beat somebody up or, or pull a gun and actually shoot somebody. Like this, these things don't happen, even though the circumstances have shown the viability for it many times over their, their engagement history. So this long history of them walking the line of applying necessary violence in their minds or, or conditional violence towards their uh, things that they won't accept from the federal government, it gets thrown out the window this, this last year uh, and, and in the months leading up to um, 
January 6th. It's completely tossed. We see a completely different shift in mentality. And so when we talk about sedition in this regard, think about it thematically as, as an organization, we, we see a seriously stark shift in what they're willing to do. And not just, uh, you know, they've done QRFs, they've done the quick reaction forces. This is not new. This is a very common thing throughout the militia and patriot movement history. But what we see with this one is, as John pointed out, in the tactical evaluation of this and the analysis of it is that they acted on it. From beginning of first conception to it, all the way through to that day, they acted on it. And that is, I think, where we see the charges come uh, as a non-lawyer, as someone that doesn't sit in the legal aspect of this, but as a, a DVE expert, an analyst and researcher, I look at that and I say, there's your argument. There's your legal argument from the government to say, no, listen, they really wanted us gone and they were willing to do it. And here's the evidence that suggests it. So then when we pull back and, and kind of take stock of the insurrection in 1-6, who are the winners and losers in, within the broader far-right milieu? Because it almost seems like the federal government is really coming after the Oath Keepers, whereas the Proud Boys are kind of getting not the light. I don't want to say, I don't want to characterize it as the light touch, but there's not this sort of um, harder sort of edge. They're not being charged with sedition. They're being charged with uh, trespassing, but interference or something. I'm again, not of a legal mind, but um, who could, who could we say are the winners? Who could we say are the losers or do we just broadly say that everybody who participated in the insurrection kind of has left that, you know, losing something or coming off in a bad position? Yeah, I don't think we can say that everybody came off in a bad position. I think, um, you know, if we think about it from a thematic standpoint of these uh, various different actors that emerged um, throughout the past, I don't know, 20 years, uh, you know, in, in this post 9-11 era, um, you know, I, I think that the the through lines we've talked about tonight, this sort of illiberalism, this rejection of democracy, this uh, embrace of fascist beliefs uh, within groups like the Proud Boys and, and other um, neo-fascist elements that make up, you know, a lot of the accelerationists we see in the United States today. I mean, hell, even the Boogaloo Boys don't exactly pretend to like democracy fully. They're, they're, they don't really hide it. I mean, there's different strains, obviously, within it. And they weren't present at January 6th. But when we talk about the bigger picture, um, but they weren't, I shouldn't say they weren't present at January 6th. There wasn't a organized presence of the Boogaloo January 6th. Uh, but when I think we talk about the bigger picture of who's the winner and losers, I think you could say the Oath Keepers are probably going to be losers in the outcome of this. I think it's, it's dramatically impacted the organization's viability. And if Stuart Rhodes goes to prison for a very long time, then that probably does some severe damage to the viability of the organization because he, well, more or less is the organization. Um, We've already seen a slough off of, of individuals uh, continuing to promote and consider themselves members of it. Um, three percenters have already put out a statement. You know, we can talk about the veracity of it or not, but or whether it really mattered considering three persons pretty diverse as a group and, and individualized, sort of disavowing January 6th and saying that this is really making us reconsider what we're doing here, um, folding the national chapter. But when you talk about groups like the Proud Boys and you talk about um, the sort of broader sociological shifts that that spawn Stop the Steal and some of these other conspiracy-oriented actors like Roger Stone, uh, Alex Jones, they're clear winners. I mean, they are clear winners here. They have dealt a severe blow to the perceptions of democracy in this country. The, they have made it very clear, uh, you know, the God bleeds. And I think I think that's a very important thing to, to, to really contextualize and wrap our heads around is that January 6th 
could have been much worse. I mean, we, we all understand this. I, I, I sat here in my apartment in DC and watched it unfold and thinking to myself, shit, is this gonna happen? Uh, and I think a lot of us had that same mentality. And then we had this moment of recollection or, or recollecting ourselves afterwards saying, wow, that was really, really damn close. But in the buildup, the bigger picture, January 6th was a black eye and it was intended, you know, there's a bit of a, bit of a, a analytical liberty here uh, to talk of the macro, but it was intended to, to bloody the nose of liberal democracy. It was meant to show that in the post-World War II era, uh, the post-collapse of the USSR and, and, and communists, uh, communism's grip on, on a huge swath of this world, that liberalism does not have an ironclad grip over the future of geopolitics, over the future of the human race. And I think that that is something that's often overlooked. And, and when we really devolve this down into what does this mean for America? What does this mean for American democracy? It means that it's a lot more fragile than we thought it was. And, and we know this. We've, we've heard throughout the history of American politics, the, the leaders and, and, and the figures that have really pushed American democracy to where it is today, that you have to keep fighting for it. You have to keep making sure that, it, that the, the enemies at the door stay outside and not inside. And I think in the last few years, we've actually seen that they're coming from the inside more than we want. Um, and, you know, this investigation at the broadest level into January 6th from all different sides is going to show us more and more an uncomfortable truth, which is we have increasingly lost sight of the need to defend American democracy from ourselves and not just from foreign actors and entities that want to use terrorism, state power, nuclear weapons, whatever the hell they can throw at us. We forgot to look inside and say to ourselves, and a lot of us don't actually think democracy is all that great and haven't always agreed with the notion of democracy. Oh, by the way, some of us are monarchists at the very beginning. You know, There's these real questions that don't always keep relevance throughout our history. And I think January 6th's clear victors are those that are embracing of that rejection of liberal democracy. So it's not, so we don't, so the understanding it is, that 1-6 isn't this trauma for the far right, rather it's a pivotal moment where we can kind of see that the prince has no clothes, God bleeds, and really, you know, liberal government, you know, as, as democracy liberal, not like liberal Democrat, is, is not an inevitability, rather, you know, it's, it's actually emboldened. It, it, kind of an emboldening moment, emboldening, I, I don't know what the word is, but, um, you know, not trauma, but rather kind of as a growth point, as a point to say, you know, liberalism, there, it's not an inevitable, fascism is, or kind of a more far right type of government is. is I think that's a, a fairly uh, accurate characterization. Yeah, I think I think you're you've got it pretty much on the the nose there. And yes, we are talking about liberalism, right? Not liberal leftist American Democrat type personalities and and political uh, philosophies here. Um, but if you look at the figures that that have defined a lot of the past five years politics in the United States, uh, and sort of the sort of the Western world's um, the internal assault within the Western world on liberal democracy. People like Steve Bannon, who were very much at the center of what was happening uh, on J6, uh, physically was was there, uh, not in the Capitol necessarily, but in D.C. We have to remember that they have been very clear about what they want to see and, and that that has been a degradation of the institutions in this country and in other Western liberal democratic countries or parliamentary democratic countries um, that sort of make up the quote unquote West, right? Uh, 
they want to see those degraded. They want to see them torn down. They want to see them challenged and, and, and not necessarily, even if they can't tear them down, make them less trusted. Because eventually what they think will happen is that the people will stand up and say, hey, the hell of this, this doesn't work for me anymore. And that's kind of what we saw on January 6th to a bit, right? Not every single person on January 6th was intending to go there and tear down the government. They got caught up in the moment. And that's, that's true. I mean, people get mob mentality. They get into a situation where they get caught up in the heat of it. And there were definitely people that got caught up in the heat of QAnon, Stop the Steal, that showed up and they felt, oh, I'm doing some great thing. Some of them showed remorse, right, after the fact. And I think we've seen leniency in some of the charging with that, some of the, uh, sentencing. Others have clearly not. And then that's, that's you know, going to happen. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's a, it's a viable challenge to the hold of democracy. And you're right, it's not an inevitability. Yeah, and I mean, in my um, trend of taking and butchering historical quotes, you know, it's not, if you look at J6, it's, it's not the beginning of the end, it's the end of the beginning, right? And I think that when you really take a look at the, the landscape of what took place that day and, and what's taken place since, um, there are some troubling warning signs um, well beyond just these kind of organized, known, named DVE groups like the Oath Keepers, like the Proud Boys. Um, when you look at some of the most egregious acts of medieval violence on that day for hours on end, right, in, in the lower West Terrace, in, in some of the tunnels, in um, you know, these, these specific areas of the U.S. Capitol, what you see is, um, you know, the allegations are, of course, is that it's, it's perpetrated not by Oath Keepers, not by Proud Boys in, in most of these cases, not by three percenters. Um, it is by an individual who seemingly has no affiliation with one of these known named DVE groups, has no history of um, mobilization before 2020, right? And when you look at a lot of these flashpoint events in 2020, what you really see is this perfect storm of radicalization and mobilization. Um, whether it's uh, COVID-19 mandates and lockdowns that lead to the kidnapping attempt against the governor of Michigan. When you look at the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent mobilization by an you know, a whole host of uh, far-right actors, Google Movement members, accelerationists, in response to racial justice protests. And then when you look at this mainstream embrace of this conspiracy theory that the, the election will be stolen and that the election was stolen and that you know you have to you know take up arms against this 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 tyrannical group that is trying to steal your freedom, your democracy. And when you look at what has taken place in, in the 12, 13 months now since January 6th. That, that mainstream has shown no sign of, of degradation. Um, when you look at a lot of the continued local mobilization by a group like the Proud Boys that, as, as you said, is certainly not avoided charges, but um, is, is far less singularly hierarchical than, than the Oath Keepers, has still enjoyed relative freedom to mobilize in places like Portland, at local school boards, at Justice for January 6th, um, you know, memorials at, at memorials for Ashley Babbitt um, has still enjoyed this relative freedom to continue to propagate 
the very same narratives that led to January 6th. And, you know, whether it's individual actors, whether it's narratives, whether it's grievances, these these are fundamentally what matter here. When you when you look forward to 2022 and 2024 at state election offices, at local school boards, at state capitals, um, it's those things. It's those things that matter. It is um, to a certain extent. It is is not necessarily what happens to Stuart Rhodes in in the next six months. Um, it, it, it's not necessarily even, you know, whether, you know, someone like Enrique Tario is, is charged in, in relation to all this. Um, it's those far, far deeper mobilizing concepts, like Cynthia Miller Idris says, that um, are what are going to, you know, lead to future acts of potential violence by individuals in these spaces. That's interesting, because you almost make it seem like once another one six is inevitable but it i mean on the flip side it almost seems like a lot of these actors are kind of switching to the more local level so instead of you know interfering with uh election certification now it becomes school boards or um you know local health policy local masking mandates or vaccination mandates but i mean kind of circling back i mean do you see like one six do you see do you see it on a general level being reproducible and then on a more specific level you know is this is this what we have to anticipate every four years yeah so it's an interesting question so you know i think on the certainly on the on the government response side uh, and the kind of hard security side right um you know whenever you have something like january 6th um it, it is obvious that the the, the response will be um you know, significant in terms of potential future um, mobilizations. Um, and we saw that in, uh, I want to say it was September or October, there was there, there was some large justice for J6, free our political prisoners type rally that um, ended up being, you know, kind of kind of nothing at, at on, on US Capitol grounds, um, or, or on the on the mall, at least. And there was there there was a large, aggressive, law enforcement response. And, you know, I think the one thing that's obvious is that whenever something like that happens, enough, um, you know, pressure will be exerted by the various mechanisms in federal government to make sure that that, that does not happen again. Um, but I think it, it's a really important point to consider that, you know, prevention of another January 6th cannot be the barometer for success in the DVE space. Um, and again, I think there's, there's certainly the argument to be made that a lot of what happened on Jan 6 goes far deeper and far beyond this kind of narrow question of domestic violent extremism. And as we just talked about, these kind of no-named groups. But yeah, exactly, exactly what you just basically laid out is that a lot of this threat, and again, it's not necessarily new, but it's certainly emboldened, has kind of seeped into that mainstream, has seeped into state and local politics, right? Individuals, um, in, in numerous states, you know, Pennsylvania, I'm thinking of, um, individuals, you know, state legislators who are still in office, who hold up this kind of membership, um, you know, card, as it were, that, you know, a badge of honor that they were at January 6th, that, that they were there, that, you know, that was a great day that the patriots were able to make their voice heard. And so, you know, yeah, exactly as you said, whether it's um, at a state capitol, whether it's at a 
um, you know, harassment or threats against a, a local election worker, whether it's poll counting, whether it's poll watching, um, you know, the, the threat has, has become even more localized than, than before. In a lot of ways too, January 6th is, is an inflection point, right? I mean, we, we see this tension building and building and building and building, and it was not without earlier indications. I think we can, we can very clearly, John points out that the state legislators are still holding this card of pride for being at January 6th in DC. But January 6th was not just in DC. We had mobilizations similar to the Stop the Steal narrative that existed at state capitals and in, in, in major cities outside of, of DC the same day. I, there were riots that occurred where Boogaloo boys were arrested uh, on January 6th that weren't in DC. There were three percenters uh, in, in Atlanta that showed up wearing skull masks and, and very much looking like some accelerationists at the state capitol in Atlanta, right outside the, the Capitol Dome building. And, you know, I think that that really points to something that we're, we're kind of forgetting is that January 6th focus has predominantly been on the insurrection that occurred at the U.S. Capitol, but there was a crap load of other activity that occurred that same day and also in the weeks and months leading up to it. Um, we can look back to, like John pointed out earlier, the attempted kidnapping and execution extrajudicially of uh, Gretchen Whitmer, Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, that whole mobilization there was preceded by a presence in the state capitol, armed Boogaloo members, militia members, regular Joes and Schmoes that were in the, the region that wanted to come and make their voices heard in a way that was a little bit different than what we probably want to see them do, right? I mean, this was not exactly a polite manner of, of, of making themselves heard. Protest is one thing. Disrupting uh, political proceedings has been a, a long-standing element of protest in this country and in other countries. But what they, they did was clearly distinct. And in other state capitals, like in, in Washington, we see uh, in Oregon, we see individuals holding doors open for people to come in, the side door, armed militia individuals and threepers and others, again, the same similar actors, Proud Boys, to come in and, and, and disrupt and intimidate and threaten. There were state capital and state legislator individuals who could not go to work under threat of death. They viably thought they were being threatened with death to the point that they hired private security, the state uh, apparatuses of law enforcement and security gave them protection. Some of them wore Kevlar vests and made a point of going despite that. So when we talk about January 6th, is, is, is there another January 6th that could happen? Maybe, but I think we're looking at the wrong picture here. We're not, the U.S. Capitol, again, it was meant to bloody the nose, show that God can bleed, right? The, the heartbeat of how it keeps American democracy moving is local and state elections. The federal uh, level is extraordinarily important. It's a symbol to the world. It is a symbol to the American people of a continued viable constitutional democracy. But the state and local is where things shift. We've seen it throughout the history of politics in the United States, whether it's the civil rights movement or the preceding uh, restrictions on civil liberties and, 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 and racial uh, you know, in, in racial, I'm getting really worked up about it, but I think about this, but there's, there's a whole history of racial uh, segregation that moved at the state level that had nothing to do with the federal government or in terms of who precipitated and who, who prolonged it and who pushed back on it, though the federal government obviously had a role to play there and they, and they did. These things occur well beyond the inflection points, the focal points that really become acute in the memory of the American public. You know, you can look back at many different moments in American history and see literal battles raging in the streets of certain towns. I can think back to the, 
the the Greensboro massacre that gets often overlooked when we talk about political violence in this country, you know, it's been a lot better with people like Kathleen Bailey and others were bringing it back into the focus point of contemporary history. But these things matter and we often overlook them when we talk about what comes next. Personally, when I look at this, I do not think another January 6th is likely to occur for many different reasons. The point John made about, you know, the, the response is going to be robust. They're not going to let that happen again. We've seen that in the post 9-11 realm. We don't let that happen again, whether it's a bomb in a shoe, a bomb in underwear or whatever. We change wholesale the system to make sure that doesn't happen again. The problem with focusing on that event is it's retroactive. We're looking backwards. We're not looking forwards. We're not trying to anticipate what comes next. You know, John and I have, have, have worked towards uh, erecting the acceleration as a research center because we're trying to look forward. We understand that there's a shift in the far right where people are trying to change the dynamic, get others that are trying to carry out activities or willing to do stuff violently to look forward, right? Take inspiration from the past, but be more innovative. Uh, and I think we have a, a, a duty as Americans as a whole to actually look forward and not just fixate on the, the, the recent inflection point or the past events. But to take those and look forward and say, that's not likely to happen again, but something similar could or something else in this space could. Um, you know, we're seeing an alarming number of Americans that are readily dismissing the, the reality of the Holocaust. We're seeing an alarming number of Americans willing to institutionalize policies, removing literature on anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and these things. And that is not disassociated from what we saw on January 6th. And that is not disassociated from the broader landscape of the far right, including the Oath Keepers Embrace of QAnon, including the Proud Boys overt anti-Semitism and embrace of fascism. These things are intertwined. And when we talk about what's the next January 6th, I think we need to be looking at things like the banning of, it, of, of literature that talks about anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, because those are the points in the future where history becomes a rhyme. And it tells us these are things that happen again and again and again. Uh, so when, when, I, when I think about what, what comes next, when we talk about how, you know, tie us back to the Oath Keepers, they're more a representation of a broader shift within, within the mainstream uh, dissenting elements of, of the American right or the American populace as a whole. Because a lot of people got caught up in January 6th and the Stop the Steal that I wouldn't necessarily classify as, as right-wingers. There are people that were absolutely leftist New Agers that, that got sucked into QAnon. Uh, there's others that sort of shifted their mentalities out of Occupy into a anti-whatever you want to call QAnon, Stop the Steal. Uh, aiming their frustrations now at the government as opposed to shadowy cabals in, in, the, in the world. But the Oath Keepers, their shift to what they were able to do overtly after walking for so many years on this thin line of violence, nonviolence, and, and intimidatory behavior, it represents a stark change. And then the American public has to understand that there's a period ahead of us where we're going to have to be very anticipatory of changes that are extreme in our minds, but have become quite mainstream in others. It's kind of <laughs> like the implication of what you're saying is that like the security services will get better at stopping more extreme events. So Oklahoma City, 9-11, 1-6, but we'll, we'll kind of falter or fail at the idea of, of a radicalization that occurs at a more local level. The, the, the older person who you know, radicalizes into Q and then suddenly becomes an anti-vaxxer and then they kind of steamroll themselves into, you know, into uh, CRT protest or uh, getting elected to a school board to to kind of change the the nature of Holocaust and slavery education or something like that. I mean, is that 
is that what what you're kind of pointing to or is it or there'll still be extreme events it's just that what's going to have a lot more impact is this kind of uh death by a thousand cuts type of approach to our politics yeah i i think when when we've looked at a lot of these topics we've discussed tonight and a lot of the drivers of what happened on jan 6 um it really does speak to what is the fundamental challenge of how the U.S. government approaches domestic terrorism today. Um, I think when you look at the past 20 years, um, when you look at kind of the, you know, the the rise of um, Al Qaeda, when you look at you know American ISIS supporters, um, you see a response that indicates, um, perhaps belatedly, but um, an understanding of the ideological drivers of this pathway towards violence um, in support of the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda or some, again, known, named foreign terrorist organization that's designated by the U.S. government. And there are very robust laws in place, um, again, certainly ones that are worthy of debate when it comes to civil rights, civil liberties, but nonetheless, robust laws and frameworks that allow for um, a, a significant amount of cases to um, be stopped by the Justice Department and the FBI um, before it gets to the point of violence because of how um, the system is set up. And you really don't see that same type of system in any way, shape, or form in, in the domestic space. And obviously, when you look at the history of domestic law enforcement, um, and, you know, the various overreaches and the missteps by, um, you know, various components, um, you know, whether it's targeting of civil rights and civil liberties, whether it's stuff like Waco, Ruby Ridge, a lot of this is understandable. There, there, they are, there is a bit of gun-shy um, attitude to some of these things. But I think what it really speaks to is this, is this fundamental challenge when it comes to understanding the ideology, understanding what drives these individuals um, towards towards violence. And when you look at a lot of the statements by the FBI post January 6th, what they effectively say is first, you know, this, this confusion of whether they can even look at social media posting, which is public, which is just a whole, a whole other can of worms. But when you look at what seems to be a deference and a, a reluctance to touch what could be viewed as First Amendment protected speech. And that's what really comes to play in a lot of these instances where there are individuals who are kind of doing, you know, what we saw with the Boogaloo movement, which is this kind of like wink and nod, in-group, out-group coded language, you know, um, that is stopping just short of making that really, you know, clear, actionable statement that like, hey, I'm going to, you know, bring a gallows to the U.S. Capitol and then like hang Nancy Pelosi from it. Like, it, it manages to stop just short of that. And when you look at a lot of the buildup to Jan 6th, what you see is a um, insurrection that was planned in plain sight, by and large. You know, you obviously have the Oath Keepers who were, who were using signal chats, allegedly. You have Proud Boys who, who were using cryptic communications as well. But the, the vast majority were just kind of your average individual who was posting on Facebook that, hey, I'm going to go to the U.S. Capitol that day and stop to steal. And it is indicative of, of, of this problem when, you know, in, in the aftermath of Gen 6, you have testimony from the FBI that, that just continually hits this point that we don't look at the ideology. We don't look at First Amendment protected speech. We don't look at anything close to it. 
we only look at individuals who are moving on this pathway towards violence. And again, the, it, it is all well and good when it works, but when, when it doesn't, you, you see the results. And when there isn't this strategic level understanding of the, again, the, the, the narratives, the grievances, the drivers of mobilization, then you get a, a faulty intelligence assessment. You get an assessment that, oh, we, we saw what happened in DC in November and December at these million mega marches. We saw some street violence, we saw some stabbings, but we didn't see an attempt to, to breach the US Capitol. And so this is another million mega march and, and that's it. When, again, it, it, it doesn't take an expert extremism researcher to understand that this, this was viewed by these, by these individuals as their last chance, as their final stand, as the moment for them to make history, the moment for them to stop the steal. This was the, like, January 6th was the last moment for them. Of course, it was going to be different than November and December and at, at these rallies in DC. And I think that, that at, you know, in some part, again, we, there's obviously a lot that still has to be unpacked, a lot of information that, that we haven't seen that, that surely is still classified. But when you look at it, it, it you know, it, it does speak to this really, really challenging state, you know, state of affairs where um, domestic law enforcement is having a real trouble at understanding how to stop domestic terrorism. So I think we, we've kind of uh, reached the last, one of the, one of the next to last questions for the show. And something that's been bothering me, uh, and I need to ask it, and I apologize. Uh, what is the role of Olive Garden in all this? Um, I, I might be characterizing it uh, wrong here, but didn't the Oath Keepers, they took like a golf cart trip to Olive Garden or... Uh, which kind of blows my mind. You spend $30,000 on kits and you're in DC and you don't go to any of the other fine, like DC is just a fantastic dining place and you take the golf cart to Olive Garden. So, I mean, could you uh, maybe explain that a bit to us? <laughs> I think, I think you have to look no further than, than the motto of Olive Garden, right? You know, when you're here, your family. And I think that really speaks to the, to the, you know, radicalization process and <laughs> the, the, the search for meaning by, by, by many of those keepers. Um, but no, I, I, I do, I do love the thought that, um, again, as when you look at the indictment, what you really see is, you know, that they allegedly, of course, went to Olive Garden and then saw the news that people were being arrested and then immediately left. And so the, just this thought that like, they expected like just jackbooted FBI agents <laughs> to just break down the doors of Olive Garden and just, you know, arrest them there on the spot as, as they were enjoying their breadsticks is, is really an, an interesting thought. Um, and, and I'll turn the rest to Matt. Listen, some people bring orange slices after the big game. Uh, other people go for the all-you-can-eat super salad. You know, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, no, I mean, I think, I think it's, I think it's actually, there's a more pernicious in, in the real, like, thing we should take away from this, right, is that their behavior, they felt it was so normalized that they could just stroll into an Olive Garden afterwards, right? I mean, an open restaurant, hours maybe less after engaging what is now an insurrection and they're being charged with seditious conspiracy and they're going and sitting in public and and i mean uh, i don't know what the nature of the conversation was but i can't imagine it was anything other than what they had just done that day so they're in public talking about this and i think that really speaks to the mentality that 
yeah, whatever. This was great. Let's go to, let's go get some grub, you know? And, and I think, you know, it's not shawarma at the end of Avengers, right? They're not, they didn't just save the damn world from an invasion. They invaded the capital of the United States and tried to disrupt democracy, something they same claim that they're the protectors of. So I, it's, it's, there's a deeply unsettling while hysterical element of that. And I think that's, uh, we laugh because it helps us survive, right? And I, and I, you know, when I look at that, I, I, I have to really, I have to really laugh or else it just, it disturbs me deeply when I, when I really think of the implications of it. I mean, I think you're right. Like it just, it is kind of disturbing. Like, oh, we're, we're bringing $30,000, maybe even more worth of weapons to the Capitol. Uh, we, we just did something highly illegal. Let's all go get breadsticks, unlimited breadsticks right. and, and Alfredo sauce, drenched noodles or whatever. Um, I mean, I mean, that is very like disturbing. It's just like a casual nature of it. It's just like, they're, they're not on the lamb. They're not on the run. Right. They're not right. Off- obfuscating their behavior. They're just like, Hey, let's go get some Olive Garden. <laughs> it, it almost reminds me of the, uh, the, the killer that knows that they're about to be caught by the police, but you know, and a lot of the popular media that just sort of, yeah, sure, I'll stand over the body and I'll put the gun down calmly and walk with you. I know exactly what I just did, and I don't give a shit. You know, it's it's sort of that mentality in a way, and, and at the same time, it's a complete indifference towards the, the the, you know, the hallowedness of the institution they were they were supposedly protecting, uh, and it's, it's strange. Wow, that's. <laughs> uh congratulations we just made uh olive garden very depressing uh <laughs> <laughs> wasn't before <laughs> <laughs> right um, uh so uh, i think we we've covered a lot today and so this is kind of the end of the show and usually when we end the show we ask uh our guests to provide us um something to leave us to leave a comment or a question or a research idea to kind of for us as the audience to kind of chew on, to think about, to really kind of mull over. So uh, I leave it to you two to sort of give us that bit. Yeah, I think, look, I mean, having having stared at the uh, Department of Justice's prosecution of over 730 individuals uh, for the past uh, 12 months, 13 months at this point, more or less, um, I think the the big thing that exists as a as a research gap is deep dive understanding of who a lot of these individuals really were, right? I think from from especially from the misdemeanor cases for from the DOJ, we get a, a very top level baseline sense that you know this individual went to the Capitol, um, you know, walked up the steps, walked through the door through the police line, um, and then went home. And for a lot of these court documents, that is the that is the end of it. And I think that. Um, you know, when you look at kind of, um, you know, the, the degradation that we've seen of kind of local news, th- there does exist kind of this gap where I think, understandably, given we just spoke for you know, two hours on the Oath Keepers, that there's obviously a good amount of interest in the activities of, you know, the biggest, uh, most significant cases, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, Three Percenters. Um, but there's this whole, there's this whole other kind of ecosystem out there. And it's stuff we've talked about today, are these kind of mainstream folks who, Again, like when you look at some of these cases, individuals who seemingly had no mobilization before some kind of stop the steal or, or anti-mask rally in 2020, who, you know, were not, you know, ardent supporters of white supremacy, but who were willing to go to the Capitol and effectively, you know, engage in 
authoritarian behavior, violence against law enforcement. And I think that there is so much that hasn't been told about those stories. And I think that um, it, it really does give a window into a lot of those, a lot of those areas and a lot of those unanswered questions. Uh, you know, from my perspective, I think about this more as a, if I tie it back to the Oath Keeper, sort of like the, the focal point of what we were, we've been discussing, um, you're not going to rest your way out of this. You're just not. I mean, John's right. We, how, I don't know, 700 plus individuals arrested now. You're not going to arrest your way out of the problem that's facing the American people and the American democratic system. Um, and when we talk about the Oath Keepers particularly, or specifically, um, you know, roads can disappear. The Oath Keepers can fall apart. But what they represent, what they're a part of, the broader ecosystem that they uh, sit within, that sort of militia and patriot movement, um, the inheritors of that space and sort of the, the legacy elements of that space, um, it's going to outlive whatever the Oath Keepers are. Uh, whatever their their narratives that they've birthed into the broader zeitgeist of the of the American psyche is, uh, it's there. It's it's not you know it's not gone. It's not going to disappear just because you put Rhodes in prison for ten years or whatever. Um, so I, I think when we when we talk about this and it's something to think about as uh, to chew on as we walk away from this discussion is how do we then reconcile and grapple with those narratives and that. The notion that a sizable number of Americans in this country um, and a growing number of individuals in other democratic countries uh, as well no longer see that concept, that, that equality for all, that uh, level playing field that, that represented within our, our system and of, of governance, they no longer see it as viable, necessary, worthwhile. How do we grapple with that? And I think we have to really sit down and say to ourselves that there's a lot more than we individually have to be doing. And it, and it can take many forms. I'm not going to sit here and prescribe certain actions. I think everybody has their own way of contributing back to that, but it's not going to come from sitting and consuming your news and social media at home. It's going to come from getting involved and, and it has to be in a peaceful manner. You know, that's the only prescription, right? It has to be peaceful uh, in, in a sense that that system will not course correct on its own. It's not going to just magically fix uh, and the, the sentiments, like I said before, the sentiments the Oath Keepers have put out there, the, the concepts that they've birthed, they will outlive whatever the Oath Keepers themselves are. Uh, really insightful. Um, so we, we're ending the show. So that's uh, John Lewis, Matt Kreiner. Uh, go read the paper. The, the paper is, is fantastic. Uh, we'll post a link to it. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And read Sam Jackson's books, book on the Oath Keepers. Everything we, we have built is first built by him. You know, we, we just deepened it. So, you know, read his book as well. Definitely, definitely.